My name is Emily Rollins, and I'm the coordinator of the Research Unplugged conversation series. We started, I think, five or six seasons ago. We run spring and fall of each, each year, and we're based on what's called Café Scientifique, which originated in the U.K. a couple years ago and has now spread throughout the U.K. as well as the United States. And the concept is to bring community members to a comfortable and casual atmosphere, such as the theater, to have a chance to discuss research with experts. So that's what we do here each Wednesday. We have two more events this season, and then we'll start up again in the fall. And today we have some guests from the College of Engineering. Uh, they're going to record, and we're going to do something a little different. We're going to ask that you use the microphone to ask your questions today. I know for the regulars it'll be a little different, but Curtis will be running the mic around. He's in the back. Um, and it won't project your voice, it's just getting quality audio so that we can edit the questions into the audio recap of the event. And if for some reason you don't want to be recorded, just say that before answer or asking your question and we'll make sure to edit that out. So with that, I am going to turn it over to Katie Feeney, our intern, and she will introduce today's host. Oh boy, this makes me nervous. Am I on TV right now? Hi, Mom. <laughs> um, I'm here to introduce Bruce Logan, who's our speaker today. Uh, he's a professor. At, do I have a mustache as well? I'll move up. Okay. <laughs> he's a professor of uh, environmental engineering, and he's the director of both the institutes up there, Engineering Environmental Institute and the Hydrogen Energy Center here at Penn State. Um, he did his undergrad work at RPI, where he graduated with a degree in chemical engineering and got his PhD in environmental engineering at the University of, University of Cal, California, Berkeley. Can't even read my own writing. Um, he's worked on research for a couple years before he came to Penn State where he could work on research and teach as well, which is ideal. Um, he and his wife, Angela, have two middle school-aged children, Margaret and Alex, who he says are absolute Penn Staters, right? <laughs> <Did I laughs> which is that? good. <laughs> um, and he's here to talk to us today about how we're using energy in this country, um, competitiveness with oil, and the solutions that we need to discover in the future. So since I know nothing about that, I'll turn it over to him so he can tell you. <laughs> okay, great. Thanks very much. Oh, I give this to Curtis. Yeah. Thanks very much. This is kind of a, a, a different forum for me to be talking at, so I really uh, I look forward to having a conversation with you about this. And I, th I thought what I'd do is start out with a few uh, thoughts about hydrogen and the hydrogen economy and what it is. And if you want to look at the PowerPoint slides that I have here, great. They're not essential to the conversation. They're just there because I'm not Eric Clapton and I can't be completely unplugged. Um, I, the reassurance of just a few, few uh, pictures and so forth is helpful. So what's the whole thing about the hydrogen economy? It's basically that we're running out of fossil fuels. We're looking for something else to use as a fuel and primarily for transportation. And so I have in this PowerPoint slide an opening picture of a catabus for a very specific reason, which I'll come to in just a couple of minutes. Well, if it's all about energy, why is uh, energy important other than what we pay at the gas pump? Well, I think Richard Smalley said it the best. He said, energy is the single most critical challenge facing humanity. Um, but I'm an environmental engineer, and so really when I think about great challenges, I think about environmental challenges. But I can agree with Richard, um, but maybe change that wording just a little bit. Uh, energy is the single most critical environmental challenge facing humanity. Let me explain that. 
um, the, the real question is about fossil fuels. And back in the 70s, many of us lived through that, uh, that great uh, experience of waiting for hours and hours in line to get our car filled. And it wasn't that we ran out of fossil fuels. Um, there was plenty of fossil fuels. It was just that demand within this country exceeded production in the country, and that created an oil crisis within this country. Now, that was predicted, and in fact, the same scenario is occurring across the globe. Everybody looks at the demand for fossil fuels, and they look at possible production. It's not like we're going to find new reserves of fossil fuels. And if you look down the road, and we can agree or disagree on the exact date, but maybe 10 or 20 years from now, demand is going to exceed production. And we can anticipate having a similar oil crisis. And maybe we're already well on the road to that with $70 uh, for a barrel of oil. So our impetus to look at hydrogen comes from many, for many different reasons. But one is to try and find something that's an alternative to fossil fuel. Now, what makes this an environmental challenge is that there's lots of ways to produce energy. We can, make, we can build more nuclear power plants. We can go in deep into the ocean and figure out how to use methane hydrates. So methane uh, stores deep in, in the ocean. We can look at uh, increasing the use of coal. We can look at maybe some less than desirable sources of fossil fuels, oil shale. So we have all these options available to us except for one environmental problem, and that's climate change and global warming. As we continue to pull these stored carbon sources out of the ground and re release that carbon dioxide into the air, we make uh, climate change worse. And so we're faced with this conundrum. We, have, we want more energy, or at least we want as much energy as we have today, but we don't want to dig it up out of the ground because that's going to uh, make climate change worse. And so we look to something like hydrogen as perhaps being a way to solve both those problems at once. Now hydrogen has been called the perfect fuel, right? Water, H2O. So if we could extract hydrogen out of water in some manner that would allow us to get that hydrogen and use it as a fuel, that would be great. Um, in the universe, it's the most abundant element, so there's certainly a lot of it. Um, it's present on just about everything on Earth, and when you use it, all you do is create water. Hydrogen and oxygen uh, combine to make water. So it seems like an ideal situation. Um, we can solve greenhouse gas emissions, not release CO2 into the atmosphere. Um, if we can find ways to make it in the U.S., that don't rely on technologies or processes or sources of that hydrogen outside the U.S. It could help with security of the nation because we don't have to rely on anybody outside of the country. Um, and in fact, the hydrogen, it's not like we have to create a whole new industry. The industry already exists. Hydrogen is uh, a pretty valuable gas and there's about 10 billion cubic meters of hydrogen worth about a billion dollars um, uh, shipped every year. So. We, we probably don't know in our daily life about hydrogen, but it's used um, for ammonia production. Ammonia is used for crops. It's used for petroleum refining. It's used in space exploration, of course, hydrogen-powered rockets as a fuel. And it's also used in things like food. <laughs> um, so it's used in a lot of different things. And 
There are many industries that are involved in using, making, or um, uh, producing hydrogen or the technology surrounding hydrogen. Names you know, like the oil companies, names you know, like car companies, and then other names that you probably don't know, which are smaller companies. So we don't have to um, create a whole industry, but if we want to use hydrogen as a fuel, okay, what are the challenges? Well, first of all, our cars currently run on gasoline. So one of the challenges is how do you run on hydrogen as a fuel? But actually, you can run on hydrogen in a combustion engine, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Or you can use a fuel cell. Um, the big questions are, you know, how do we replace all these gasoline stations with hydrogen stations? Can we do that? Is that uh, something that's totally unfeasible? Or maybe is it a business opportunity? It's just a new way of doing things and, and new industries and uh, create new jobs and so forth. And finally, how are we really going to make this hydrogen? So let me just kind of to start off a little bit of a discussion. I mean, I have some more slides here that I can go through. I just want to put a couple up here to kind of get the wheels turning in your head. Uh, and the first is that catabus. Everybody says, well, you know, I heard about that blimp, that, that, that Zeppelin thing that blew up. Wasn't that filled with hydrogen? Yeah, it was. Um, actually, the thing that started the fire was the, the aluminum shroud around that actually ignited and burned first. The, the hydrogen was just an exclamation point on a disaster. Um, but So people generally say, well, you know, is it really safe? Well, our Catabus fleet doesn't run on hydrogen, but in fact it runs on natural gas. So it ru runs on a gas that is already compressed so that it can fit inside a bus, and we don't need, you know, imagine if all these buses were driving around, little zeppelins up in the air, you know, <laughs> storing that hydrogen, right? That wouldn't, it would make underpasses really tough, first of all, but not very practical. So you've got to compress it down. But we already use vehicles that use compressed gas. So, and I don't think any of us are too worried about the compressed uh, natural gas when we get on that bus. Um, I've had, had to put also up there a Prius. Any car that runs on gasoline can be converted over. It's a little bit different in terms of how the engine runs, but a combustion engine, just like these buses use, can also combust hydrogen. They can combust natural gas. So it's not a very big step in terms of the engines that we currently use to be able to burn hydrogen in a combustion process. And combustion is what? It's just controlled explosions. And that means you've got to put a lot of air through there, and that, while uh, is not a perfect use of hydrogen, at least it's a lot cleaner than burning gasoline. And um, how much hydrogen do we need? Well, the unit of hydrogen that equals a gallon of gas is about a kilogram. So, you know, that's a fair amount of mass, which is why there are pretty high pressures in the tanks that store these things. But the perfect way to use hydrogen is something called the fuel cell. Hydrogen goes in. And in fact, the hydrogen's under pressure, so basically it just gets released out of this tank. And then um, a funny thing happens, you actually have to compress air to keep up with the hydrogen. So you're injecting this hydrogen into the engine, uh, uh, into the fuel cell under pressure. Then you have to inject air, so it means you've got to have a compressor on board to compress that air to keep up with the hydrogen. The hydrogen and oxygen don't combust in a fuel cell. They don't cause, there's no explosions. It's just a chemical reaction, which is very quiet. It gives off a little bit of heat, 
and water comes out and it makes electricity. And so basically a fuel cell is running, is producing electricity that runs the vehicle. So this is sort of the dream vehicle. And when um, you know, President Bush said in his State of the Union address a couple years ago, a child born today will be driving a car fueled by hydrogen when they turn 16, this is the kind of technology that they envisioned. And um, this technology is not just going on in the U.S. It's going on, I mean, I'm sorry, it's going on across the U.S. Um, New York State has a plan for a kind of hydrogeny highway where they're going to start building an infrastructure around hydrogen. In Illinois, they have an airport, and they're starting to look at vehicles running on hydrogen at that airport. And then, in probably the most well-known state and the most well-known advocate of hydrogen is in California, and that's a picture of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger um, filling up a hydrogen-fueled car. He actually drives a hydrogen-fueled car, which is, um, it runs on combustion, and it's characteristically a Hummer. <laughs> there are hydrogen initiatives around the world. All different countries have hydrogen initiatives, and just to name a few, within Europe, a fleet of buses are being tested. Within Iceland, buses that run on hydrogen produced from geothermal energy, and in Japan, uh, refueling stations that are uh, making hydrogen. Um, so, all around the state, uh, all around the states, all around the world, people are looking at this as a solution, and. There's actually some work going on here at Penn State, and I can tell you a little bit about that. But I thought at this point, since I've been talking for almost 10 minutes, um, I'd try this uh, interaction forum, and maybe we could talk about this and see what your thoughts or questions might be on this. And if you don't ask questions, I'm just going to keep talking and showing more slides. So are there any thoughts or questions? Yes. What energy sources did you have in mind for producing the hydrogen? Ah, a great question. You know, the, the, the big thing is how are we going to make hydrogen? And the problem is if you just make it the way you've always made it, then have you really accomplished anything? Now, I can give you the short answer or I can show you a couple of slides on this. S slides? All right, here we go. Let me skip down a couple. So where does the hydrogen come from? Well, almost all of it today comes from fossil fuels. Half of it comes from natural gas. The rest from coal and oils and other sources. A very small fraction is, comes from water and that water is electrolyzed into hydrogen and oxygen using energy from coal, gas, and you know, other sources. But it doesn't have to be that way. Um, if we're electrolyzing water, we could do it with wind energy. We could do it with solar energy or we could use biomass that's essentially been formed by solar power. If we do that, interestingly enough, the cheapest way to do it is to, is to make electricity from gas. So actually these renewable ways to make hydrogen compared to natural gas still are more expensive. So whether you make it from water um, and uh, via energy produced by some other manner, or whether you make it the way they make it from gas, gas still wins. So we've got to, we've got to um, decrease that. Now, 
how much electricity, let's think about how, you know, let's say we, we can make the electricity in a completely renewable way. How much electricity do we need? 13 quads of energy. Anybody have a clue what a quad is? Not a clue. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of these numbers that's so enormous that it, you can't get your head around it. But imagine a nuclear power plant producing energy. About 120 of those equals 20% of the electricity we make. So about five times that would be, our, would be 13 quads of energy. So if we were to make hydrogen, enough hydrogen to run all the cars and buses and transportation, whatever, we'd need to double the amount of electricity that we make. That's a pretty big challenge. <laughs> the question is, um, can't we make hydrogen from waste heat from nuclear energy or from some of the heat from nuclear energy? And the answer is yes, we can. Um, that uh, still does not get around the issue of having to build more nuclear power plants, though. So, for example, 20% of our energy, our electricity is from nuclear power. We need to increase the number of nuclear power plants by, uh, you know, six times what we have now in order to use that. Yeah. And that, you know, this is really sort of the crux of, of how beneficial this will be. We've got the hydrogen doesn't just bubble up from the ground. We have to make it. If we used wind energy, we'd need uh, an area that's about the size of the state of Pennsylvania filled with windmills. Tomorrow looks like more of the same. <laughs> if it's business as usual. And so that's the, the main problem is that, in fact, a lot of the research that's being done is to increment off of the kinds of technologies we have today. And so I think the, the hope is that you know, the, there will be sort of breakthrough methods of doing this, but also we're going to have to learn to get by on less energy. I mean, we can't double the amount of energy in order to make more... Uh, where, so where are the breakthroughs? Where are the breakthroughs? And well, what are the potentials? And what are the glimmers? I think... I'd like some something to hope about. Well, here you go. Okay, here's solar energy. Now, 7%, I mean, anybody ever been to Arizona? Yeah. Would you mind if we lost 7% of Arizona? I wouldn't. <laughs> I can say that because I lived there for 11 years. But anyway, or maybe 10% in Nevada or something like that. So, yeah, that's... Well, you know, it's interesting. We want to dump all the nuclear waste in Nevada, right? Now we're going to cover it with solar panels. So it could end up being a pretty interesting state. But <laughs> if we used about 7% of the size of Arizona, we could, from solar energy, make enough hydrogen for, for the fleet. But that, assume, that assumes, you know, current technologies, certain efficiencies of solar energy and so forth. In fact, one of the things that you can do is make hydrogen directly instead of electrolyzing, you know, making electricity, then transferring the electricity, and then using that to electrolyze water, because there's not much water in Arizona. Um, one thing you could do is directly make uh, hydrogen through a process of direct hydrogen production. That's a very exciting new technology, which could really affect things. And, you know, they could, these things could go on the roof of your house. Uh, they could go out in, you know, big uh, uh, open areas where there's lots of sun and not a lot of people. That's one breakthrough technology. Um, it's actually, uh, it's kind of, you, you break up sunlight uh, and so that you can, in two steps, directly create hydrogen um, without having to make electricity first. 
Offline, we could talk about it. It's called the Tandem Photosynthetic Direct Hydrogen Process, and it's, uh, it's being proven, uh, it's, it's being developed uh, primarily in the UK, but there's, they've moved recently into the US to work on that as well. Yeah? But aren't you going to run into the same problems like solar energy? I was just reading that you get a solar panel and you put it up there, and it'll take you 17 years in payback time to get back the energy it took to make the panel and they're only warranted for six years. <laughs> you know, and are we that at that le level in hydrogen? Um, yeah, it sounds like my computer, you know. It <laughs> the warranty never never lives as long as the unit needs to. Yeah, um, for certain forms of solar energy, just to make heat, you know, for example, for the house, that the payback for that's a lot shorter. But what you're talking about is, you know, just to pay it back it costs seventeen years, well. That, that's at current technology, current prices, and so forth. And, you know, what we need to do is reduce that cost. Absolutely. Question over here. Yeah. I just want to make a comment on that. I mean, equating solar energy to its payback time, I don't think is necessarily fair. just want to say that because we spend a lot of money in our lives, and we never, we don't think about the payback times for those items, for one. Number two is that even though panels are warrantied for six years, I work with solar energy, and most installers will tell you that they have an infinite lifespan. Nobody knows how long solar panels are going to last, especially depending on the kinds of manufacturing that's used to make those panels. And my question is, too, I mean, we're looking at solar energy up here and a size the state of New Jersey, and that makes it seem astronomical. But if you spread that across the country and you empower individuals to be generating power in their backyard and feeding it back to the grid, um, that seems like a viable solution. And my problem with energy manufacturing now and in the future is it never includes the individual in taking a role in generating their own resources. So, so you know, the concept of does it have to be centralized power production or does it have to be dis distributed power production? And in the same way, uh, I think the point I would make about this is no one method works, but no one method's appropriate for all places in the country. Maybe in Chicago, the Windy City, you know, you take one approach different than you use in Nevada or that you use in, in um, Pennsylvania. For example, you know, biomass and, and, and states which are rip, uh, rich in crops and biomass production. So, yeah, I think you, you have to also realize, unlike fossil fuels, there's no one answer. There are, there are different answers for different places. There's, I haven't heard from him yet. Go ahead. How does, how does, U, excuse me. Yeah, <clears throat> how does U.S. energy consumption compare to consumption in other countries uh, to give us some idea of what is the potential of conservation uh, in term in, for the future? Yeah. So the question is really, through conservation, you know, how, how, how much can we achieve and how does that compare with other countries? Um, well, we're energy hogs. That's the easy one. Um, through energy recovery and through conservation, we can radically change our energy portfolio. Uh, dramatically, and particularly with transportation, of course, because we used to have standards on all vehicles and we don't have that anymore, at least in the way that we thought we were going to have them by now. Um, and and uh, we use, because we use more energy, it's easier to save energy abroad. They, in general, energy use per person is lower. How much lower? Is there a model country? Um, I, I, couldn't give you, I couldn't give you those numbers. Yeah. Question: <clears throat> Nowhere have I seen uh, biological production of energy. Uh huh. Could you comment on that? I love this question. Oh, that's a great question. Biological hydrogen production. Um, this very last one 
is biological approaches. And we're all, we're all familiar with fermentation. Ferment bacteria ferment sugars and they make ethanol. Woohoo! Um, bacteria also can ferment sugar and make hydrogen. In fact, uh, from a reactor, a little, just a kind of reactor like you make beer in using sugar, you can get a gas which is 60% pure hydrogen and 40% CO2. Now that CO2 is derived from organic matter, so it was fixed and then re-released, so that it's a neutral release of CO2. The main problem with fermentation, though, is you can't use all that sugar. You can only use about a third of it, and if you're lucky, maybe a sixth, and so you have a lot of stuff left over. Um, so we have a breakthrough technology, and I couldn't have, I, I must, I'll have to pay him after this for asking this, because <laughs> this is my research area. It's on biological hydrogen production, um, and in fact, um, this, is, this little box is filled with bacteria and uh, organic matter, and uh, we use it, if this will work, that, those bacteria are making electricity, and that electricity is powering that fan. And that's a completely biological process. And it doesn't need to use sugar. It can use proteins or newspaper or just about anything that bacteria can degrade. Now, the other part of this is that instead of making electricity, if we put just a little bit of power into that, Instead of making electricity, we make hydrogen gas because what the bacteria do is they break up organic matter into protons and electrons. They can recombine and make hydrogen. So this is who asked the breakthrough technology question. You know, who, who asked that? What, what do we need that's really... This is the kind of technology which can really make a difference because instead of needing to make electricity, burning things, converting that, and all those calculations that it's done on, for about a tenth of the energy needed for water electrolysis, we can have bacteria making hydrogen or electricity for us. And that's a breakthrough technology, and that is the kind of thing you hope will change it. Yeah. Everything we eat, everything that we eat for food in, in our body is all about making energy for our bar body using electrons. Um, it's not quite the matrix, you know, where, <laughs> where we're all putting out power, but um, everything we... <laughs> <laughs> We're all harnessed to something and making electricity, but, but in our body, we make, we make energy by having electrons flowing through a series of enzymes, makes what's called ATP, and that's our energy. So everything we eat and everything uh, bacteria eat and, and all, living li uh, all life um, essentially is based on protons and electrons, and they're in whatever we eat. Yeah, uh, They are producing... Uh, energy in the form of ATP. And, but they, it's all, it, what happens is an electron is held by an enzyme and then it gets transferred to oxygen. And instead of getting transferred to oxygen like we do, we pull that electron off and that's electrical energy, it's current. And if we take that electron and, we, and there's a proton, it has to be balanced, we put them together, we do that twice and we get one H2 molecule and it's hydrogen gas. And it literally, in one of these systems, it bubbles up out of the water as pure hydrogen gas. Yeah, okay. Um, going back to the idea of personalized the hydrogen production, um, do you have any idea, uh, assuming the efficiencies of large-scale hydrogen production, um, do you have any idea how many square miles or square feet of solar wind uh, production area you'd need for like a two-car family or an average uh, size household? Yeah, 
Um, I, I couldn't put that in numbers. I mean, I don't have those numbers, you know, um, handy. Um, but your footprint, your energy footprint is, I'm going to grab a number, you know, out of the air. It's maybe 100 times your house. I mean, it, right now, it's not practical to say you could get enough hydrogen or electricity to power everything. But um, you could power a lot of it or at least make a dent in it. And, you know, personally, I think it's more likely that the solar panels, say, on our home would be used to heat water and provide electricity for the home because collecting and compressing hydrogen gas is kind of a, a you know, a difficult technology, at least as it stands now. Yeah. Over here, somewhere? Go ahead. Anyway, it seems that hydrogen isn't really a quick fix mm -hmm. as far as just creating energy out of the blue. What it seems more like is just a really good way of transporting energy in, in basically in the form of kind of like a battery. Mm -hmm. But then you have the technology of next generation batteries that can transport electric power, um, which actually a lot of people believe has got a lot of potential in alternative energy in the future. How would you contrast or juxtapose hydrogen and, and next-generation battery power and their pros and cons, and which one really has got a better future? Hmm. So the question is really, um, which, which looks more promising, hydrogen or just improved battery technologies? And, um, you know, I have to say, I don't mean to not be decisive in this, but the answer is probably both. Um, you know, like hybrid technology today, if you had asked somebody 10 years ago if they ever thought something like that would work, they would have shrugged their shoulders and said, no way. But what we see now is that the evolution of both battery technology and um, our sort of sophistication about uh, emerging electronic and combustion technologies has really moved to sort of an unexpected pace. And in the same way, uh, we could probably anticipate that better batteries augmented by hydrogen to kick in that extra power when you need it. Or, if not hydrogen, uh, you know, let's be frank, it could be natural gas or it could be biodiesel or something like that. These hybrid technologies will work. The nice thing about hydrogen in terms of those other two, though, is it's just, it's environmentally clean and, you know, has some advantage that, you know, we could talk about, too. So, uh, it, it's not a sure thing, that's for sure. That's the only thing that's sure. <laughs> yes. All right. Great. Thanks for doing that, Curtis. Actually, that's a great thing to do. Yeah. Okay. My question is, um, are there any, uh, granted that the uh, engineering of hydrogen energy is in its infancy, mm -hmm. and you're still talking about we will have to curtail our energy use, are there any... Uh, people out there in the field who are really inspired because of the fact that hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe to go whole hog and, and to develop something where there is no limit on energy use and it will still be clean? I mean, is there anybody working in that direction? So is, is there sort of a, a, a very enthusiastic leader in all of this? Yeah. Is there somebody truly inspired in this field? Um, there are a lot of what I'll call hydrogen zealots. <laughs> I don't know if I need to put myself in that category. I'm sort of pragmatic, I think. Um, I see its benefits in so many different ways, which is why I like the technology, particularly environmentally. 
But instead of some person, I think maybe we ought to think of some country. And uh, the leader in that is probably um, uh, um, uh, Iceland. They have vast geothermal energy resources, so they can look at heating from geothermal. But they need to make a fuel that they can transport. And so they've got energy and they've got water. And so for them, hydrogen seems like an ideal solution. And so if there's anybody out in front, strangely enough, it's probably Iceland. Yeah. Yes. Um, I was wondering, because uh, we had gotten an electric catfish uh, at one point in this town, and apparently it has an organ that can create 900 volts uh, biologically in nature, and uh, there's electric eels. I was wondering if any research had been done into what these organs are doing within fish and how they're generating electricity just being able to swim around in a river. Because it seems like if we, if we did a little research on that, I mean... That'd be pretty interesting to find out how yeah. fish are generating electricity for protection. Well, I, th um, I think we all generate electricity. Um, what the fish have figured out probably how to do is store it. That is, build nice little capacitors that discharge it at uh, inopportune moments for the person touching them or the thing touching them. So a biomimetic uh, 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 electricity storage system um, or a rapid production system. And I... Um, I'm sure people do study that, but I don't know anything about that. It's kind of, a, you know, it's an interesting thought, though. Yeah. Yes. Great. Um, perhaps you could return to, to your work and this, uh, this MFC, and I was wondering uh, if you could tell us uh, some more about it and also what happens to the waste? As you mentioned that there's all these sugars and everything, so how does that, how would that work to get rid of the waste involved in that? Yeah, okay, so how, how does this new technology work? Um, well, um, uh, I'll go back a few years, about three or four billion. <laughs> uh, when life evolved on this planet, there was no oxygen. And so organisms that developed learned how to breathe without using oxygen. And so this technology is based on a very sort of old form of life whereby instead of when, when, they, when a bacterium eats something and it needs to breathe, what it's really trying to do is it's oxidized something. It's burned it. It's pulled electrons off. And when it breathes, when we breathe, we put them in oxygen. But if oxygen's not there, these bacteria figured out a way to transfer those um, electrons to solid minerals. It'd be like me being able to respire by transferring electrons from my you know, blood and, and lungs to this wall. And so just by touching those metal oxides, they could take those electrons and get rid of them. And that allowed a cycle to continue. Eat more food, get rid of electrons. And in this system, what happens is when these bacteria respire, they get about this much energy out, but it leaves about that much energy because they couldn't go all the way to oxygen. And so what this does is it recovers the rest of that energy because one electrode is where the bacteria are, and the other one is with oxygen. And so those electrons naturally flow between those two electrons, creates a potential of about half a volt, and that creates electricity. So the, the technology is based on you know, a three billion old year observation, which still goes on today. And it's very stable, very robust. We, we start one of these things, and they keep running. You know, they just run. And that's, it's kind of interesting. How do you get rid of the waste? Well, the waste is either new bacteria, so they just kind of fall off, or CO2 and water. 
And again, if that CO2 is something that they ate, that was captured, it's neutral because it gets fixed into food or organic matter and then re-released back out. Yeah. It's kind of a flip side to her question. Uh -huh. uh, there's a lot of people pushing for this for obvious reasons. But I think a big challenge would be the political pressures not for this to succeed. And how do you see that's, to me, as big a challenge to this as the actual technology. So you think the, the political pressure not to use a new technology? Well, I think there's a lot of businesses that will lose business if this becomes prominent. I mean, uh, so... And it's more of a rhetorical question, because, yeah. uh, but I'm just wondering, where do you see that going? And yeah. as far as common citizens, how, uh, you know, to well, that I, I could contrast two different uh, companies, say ExxonMobil and uh, BP. Now, I don't own stock in either of these countries, <laughs> uh, companies, so, uh, um, but these are definite big energy powerhouses. And uh, ExxonMobil's philosophy has, by and large, been to push away these alternate technologies and to say, we're an oil company, we're an oil energy company. Uh, and, you know, their, their profits are definitely uh, showing that maybe that might not be a bad decision. On the other hand, other companies have said, we're an energy company, and it's oil today, and it's solar tomorrow, and it's wind, and so forth. And so what they've done is to start to either buy up those technologies or... Um, develop them in a way which puts them at the forefront of those technologies. And so I think the, the political pressure can be relieved by the latter and not the former. What you said so far about the microbial fuel cell implies a perpetual motion machine. I'm asking, what do you feed in and what do you take out? Yeah, there's no such thing as perpetual motion. Um, you know, we... Uh, the fuel for this is the same thing that we eat. It's food. And the, the energy input of that is the sun. So basically, this is sun-driven energy because it was captured in a plant. That plant or material was fed to those bacteria or to us, and that keeps it cycling. So the sun keeps us going. It's, uh, it's nuclear uh, fuel of the sun that makes it all work. It's not perpetual motion, definitely. But you keep adding more food then? That's right. You've got to feed them. And then eventually there are waste products of the food, right? Right. CO2 and H2O. Not organic matter. Well, the organic matter would be decayed. Other bacteria, you know, they die. Other bacteria eat them, and, and that's, that's just life, yeah. Well, on the thought of a perpetual motion machine, we bought a Prius, which, <laughs> makes, us, which makes us feel good at the pump. But everything in that Prius... The batteries, the seats, the plastic, the metal, the glass, everything is all based on a fossil fuel economy. Just like every little bit of electrode and machinery and little fans and everything in yours is based on fossil fuel. And someday those two curves are going to cross that there's not going to be enough fossil fuel left to make the, the whatever kind of infrastructure you need to burn hydrogen. Yeah. How do you get around that? Um. In the end, you don't. Um, but remember, my comment was that we won't run out of fossil fuels in 10 to 20 years. It's only demand will exceed production. And so what we will start to see is, if you want to you know, imagine how it goes, that what I think we will see is that we'll see a shift from 
using those fossil fuels to burn things to still maybe using them to make plastics and commodities. We'll see an increased, uh, the other thing we're fighting against is too many dumps, right? Is any, you know, here in Center County, well, it seems like every other day I pick up the newspaper and it's about where's the dump going to be and where's the highway. Well, that cycle has to close. And so I think we start to see many more cycles starting to close where material gets used a lot more frequently. For example, you can turn um, corn into clothes. You can make your clothes out of corn. You don't have to grow cotton. You can just use corn syrup, feed that to bacteria. They make, you know, and then that can be recycled as energy. So I think the answer is we start to see some of these circles closing, and that's called uh, life cycle analysis, where you look at every all the energy and all the things you need to kind of bring it full circle, and you try and close that as much as you can. You can't ever close it, but as much as you can. Um, does the fuel cell you work on um, use a platinum catalyst? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. There's two electrodes here. One of them has bacteria, and that doesn't use any platinum. The other electrode uses platinum, but it doesn't have to. Uh, platinum's a noble metal. It's in short supply. Um, you can also run these things on cobalt, which is a relatively common metal. Or if you have enough surface area, you don't even need a, a catalyst at all. So this system is running on platinum, but other systems can be devised that don't need that. Getting back to the fuel supply of this fuel cell, is it a liquid fuel or is it solid food that you put in there? Um, it's dissolved in water. Okay. And then a second question, I'm not sure, but are you involved with some, um, some waste treatment research as well? Yes. Putting these, could you comment on that? Yeah. Tell us what you do. So the, the question really is about this, this technology and waste treatment. And um, this is a new technology. Uh, it's still on the bench scale, shall we say, in the laboratory. And you know whenever you bring a new technology out of the laboratory, you apply it at the place where it's most likely to have an immediate and economic impact. Where will it be most economically viable? And in fact, this technology will probably be most economically viable as a form of wastewater treatment. Why? Well, we use 5% of our electricity in the U.S. for water and wastewater distributing water, pumping water, collecting wastewater, treating wastewater. And it's a very in energy intensive process to treat wastewater. But in wastewater treatment is, in, is just bacteria eating food and we give them lots of oxygen. So if we were to take our existing wastewater treatment plant and use this technology, we would essentially be creating a process where instead of putting electricity into those systems, we'd be getting electricity out. We have to build the treatment plant. We have to treat that wastewater. The wastewater's free, at least people are always willing to give it to you. <laughs> um, and it's expensive to treat. So the most, all you have to do is save a few dollars to make this a technology that's useful to a community. So the hope is that down here at, uh, by Burger King, you know, where the State College uh, treatment plant is, you just kind of lift out the bioreactor there, you put one of those in, and you create electricity or, you know, hydrogen. So you can pull your Prius up and fill it up at the, uh, the hydrogen plant and close that cycle. If you save 5% of the electricity, and then maybe you make another 5%, because you can actually produce up to 10 times as much energy as the plant needs, you could essentially make that new wastewater treatment plant a power plant. Now, that's not going to solve our nation's worries. We just don't put enough down the toilet to make it worthwhile, but... <laughs> Um, it, it, it could make a, sustain, a, 
substantial impact. I realize that you're a researcher in this, uh, so you're a little bit subjective in your answer to this question, but clearly it, it doesn't take a lot of intellectual power to realize that fossil fuels are running out pretty quickly. Uh, so then you have a question mark. And you, he, you can tell our president that, by yeah, the way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> he, he seems he to have missed that if, point. If he knows it, then we jolly well better. <laughs> so very recently, but anyway. anyway. Uh, hey. So, but then you get this question mark, and human beings are naturally people that just can't take the ignorance or even dealing with their uh, that question mark for very long. I mean, how much do you really think that hydrogen is just uh, a kind of something that you can throw at the masses and toss on a couple magazine covers so that people are like, oh, well, 30 years from now, you know, hydrogen, we'll all be driving, you know, there'll be flashy colors and stuff. I mean, or do you really think that, that like, it's going to be a significant energy source in the future? Okay, well, that's a whole mixed bag of things there. Um, I think it all boils down to do I really think that in 30 years this could be an answer? And I wouldn't be standing here today if I didn't think that. Um, I, I, I think that the driver, in the end, the driver for clean energy production, and that is by that I mean C, uh, CO2 neutral energy production, is probably the greatest driver. Globally, we've got to do something about climate change. And while that is not a huge driver in this country, it is certainly a big driver across Europe. And so in the end, if that is really what you're trying to solve, and I think that's probably the biggest thing we're trying to solve in, in many ways, then hydrogen is a very good answer because um, if you have a point source production of CO2, you can sequester that, but you cannot sequester uh, millions and billions of vehicles driving around burning a fossil fuel in a gas tank. And, and so that's why I think it's a very reasonable solution. Could there be other scenarios that, you know, might achieve the same thing? Yes. You know, but of the ones that I think have the most likelihood, you know, I, I think it's uh, very likely. Climate change is why hydrogen today is an answer, and 30 years ago it probably was not. I've read papers from, say, the 70s saying that uh, we'd hit peak oil with the supply and demand crossover for oil. Um, we'd hit the global peak oil point, like in the the early 90s, and I read papers from the early 90s saying it happened, well, around now. And now we're saying it's going to be another 10 to 20 years. Um, is there anything happening now that makes it a more valid statement than it was 15 years ago? <laughs> well, um, what you're really saying is, do all scientists agree on everything? <laughs> and the answer is, all scientists don't agree on everything. Um, you have to look at you know, the, the evidence and sort of the, the people whose opinions you respect the most and, and weigh and balance that. And um, I think, by and large, most people have been saying it's not going to happen until about 2010, 2020. Um, it's very difficult to predict how China's economy in particular and India's economy in particular will impact demand. And so you really, you, you've got a crystal ball out. You're trying to to uh, crystal ball out supply and demand. And if you were really good at that, I'm betting you would probably be a billionaire doing something else than this right now. It, it's a tough thing to do. And so I think the, you know, the short answer to your question is that most people really believe it's still about 10 to 20 years off. It could be 10 years, it could be 20 years. 
uh, but uh, everybody, almost everybody, believes it's inevitable because there's only a finite supply. Uh, there was a question over here. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask about climate change. I mean, 30 years ago, I guess you, you were saying that uh, hydrogen fuel technologies weren't as uh, able to be or, or readily uh, thought of, I guess. Um, 30 years from now, is it possible that the climate will change and it, nothing like that will be a viable solution? I mean, if it changed in, in just a short period of 30 years, is it conceivable to think that we got to think about the climate changing and that might be a greater problem that we're up against, kind of like a brick so, wall of sorts? Uh, I'm not quite sure. So what you're saying, is it possible that 30 years from now, even this won't be the solution? or, or? Not, not that it won't be the solution, but will the... Uh, the game of finding a solution be compromised by global warming and a changing climate. I mean, if in the last 30 years we've seen the climate change to a point where this is possible, is it possible that in 30 years we'll move to a point where either other things are possible or this is impossible? Yeah. Um, who knows what could happen in 30 years? Um, you know, I, I think that you're asking me a question about our ability to predict climate change and really know what's going to happen in 30 years. And we're not certain enough about the rate at which it will change and the, and the foreshore outcome. But one thing we do know is at least it's changing and it's on a course to go in a certain direction. Who knows past that? If the world's economies collapsed and we all went you know, back to the Stone Age overnight, well, this wouldn't be much of a question. We'd probably have other concerns. So you just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a similar question. Um, I noticed that when you described the fuel uh, shortage in the 70s, you said that it was a lack of increase in demand, but wasn't that the Arab boycott, and I, and I, which really precipitated that? And that's, I say that by way of introduction to my question, which is that it seems as if big changes in the world generally come uh, through with um, political crises and we could all project various scenarios that could interrupt the, the smooth flow of, of supply mm -hmm. of oil. Um, and so I guess my question is, um, is this field developing rapidly enough so that if and when there is a crisis, we would be able to then convert rapidly into some new model? Mm -hmm. Or is it that we have to put more into this now <clears throat> in order to be able to react at some future yeah. point to a crisis? Yeah. So, so the first part of the question is, wasn't the 70s really caused by sort of the Arab uh, coalition to uh, fix production? And the answer is yes, but it only succeeded because within this country, we could not meet our own needs. And so the crossing point was it, it, it hit us because of the situation we were in. Um, so the, the second part is if this happens again in a way which maybe we don't fully foresee, could we respond quickly? And the answer is no. We could not respond quickly. We could, no matter how you look at it, an infrastructure like this, like building a highway. I mean, how long has I-99 taken? If we had talked about this a couple of years ago, you know, everybody said, well, it would have been built by now. Um, but it's certain that that infrastructure isn't going to occur overnight, and it's also certain that we're not doing enough about energy in this country just through conservation 
and sort of expanding the supply we have in ways that recover you know, more of the energy we have available. So we can respond in, in many ways which would lessen the pressure very quickly. This is not one of them. The infrastructure for transportation is an enormous challenge that we're just not addressing enough in, in many ways, not just hydrogen, but in many ways. And I love talking about that because I'm not talking about hydrogen anymore. I've got my uh, technical hat off, and I'm just like you. I've got my own opinions, and you've got your own opinions on this and so forth. So, <laughs> Yes? I know that most of what we're talking about is trying to create hydrogen that might fuel cars. Mm -hmm. Could you comment on not the production of hydrogen itself or the splitting of the molecules, but on the compression, the amount of energy it takes to compress hydrogen enough so that you can then put it into small enough tanks in vehicles so that you have something that's workable. Yeah, the, one of the, the questions really, how much energy do we lose just compressing this hydrogen? And um, it's a very good question because that's one of the biggest losses in capturing the hydrogen is one is separating it and the other is in compressing it. It takes energy. Um, I don't, you know, I don't have a, an, an easily palatable number that I can give you for how much energy that takes, but it is an important component of it. And it takes uh, relatively sophisticated technologies and relatively energy-intensive technologies. But like every technology, that's a part of the equation. Just like compressing natural gas and putting it on the bus, just like um, you know, growing a crop and having to expend gasoline to bring it somewhere to turn it into something else or to sell it as food, there are costs, and that's part of them. All right, I'm gonna ask you to put your technical hat back on. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> um, it's about this microbiofuel cell again. Uh huh. So you were saying, I was, I'm a little confused about how it. You can instead of making electricity, you can make hydrogen, and okay. you said. You take the electrons, and instead of putting it through a circuit, you combine it with a proton or two protons, and you get yourself a hydrogen molecule. Where do you get the protons from? Yeah, okay. Well, you know, the question is, how technical can you get at a form like this? But, <laughs> but basically, let's assume we have sugar, okay. which is six carbons, 12 hydrogen, and six oxygen, C6H12O6. And when you pull off... All the electrons, you got 24 electrons, and then you've got protons, which come from the glucose and from water. So the, the microbe is actually getting those protons from the water. And it's, so it's those protons from the, sh from the sugar and from the water and those electrons from the sugar, which are the electrons flow along the circuit and the protons diffuse through water to this other electrode, but there's not enough energy to recombine to make hydrogen. So we have to put just a little bit more energy in there and that makes them recombine and make hydrogen. Okay, last question. Uh, I mean, water shortages are becoming an issue across you know, the world, so how much water is actually going into this process, and do you think that's a, a hitch in the system? Yeah, so the question is, does this require a lot of water? Um, and um, it, it is potentially a problem in terms of a, a lot of you know, water, height, as much you know, H2O, okay, so for every hydrogen you need, you know, one water. But um, I think um, if we have a water saw, uh, shortage, what we need to do is we just connect that tailpipe over the roof into a little cup in the car, and then as we make water, we can just drink it and recycle. <laughs> <laughs> 
So actually, the process does produce back the water. Yeah, I'm being calm. Well, it's been a long hour, so you know you gotta. <laughs> um, it does take water, and so in those cases where solar energy, you know, you got the solar power, but do you have water? That's potentially a problem. But I think that one is is something we could deal with. Um, generally, we have water. It may not be of the quality of water we want to drink, but again, that's another part of the equation. How clean does it have to be? It is one of okay. I know some people have to go, and I think Bruce offered to stick around. For yeah, I'll, I'll, I'd be happy to stick around and chat for a few questions. minutes anyway. So please join me in thanking Bruce for coming. Thanks very much. Yeah. Fun. Oh, all right. Okay. And also thanks to Curtis and Tom for helping us out with the recording. And a few more things I wanted to point out. If you didn't get a magazine today and you're interested in hearing, reading more about hydrogen energy, we have an entire section here that was... Um, produced by my office on storage and fuel cells and infrastructure and all sorts of good things. And you can also go to our website. Last thing, Dave Lotero is actually here today, and he will be hosting next week, if you could just wave. Um, he is the director and resident at the Center for Sustainability, so we'll be kind of continuing this week's discussion next week. So please come back, same time, same place. Thanks again. Great, thank you.